Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we look into the exploding popularity of pickleball and why the court game is very hot for some and not for others who live near the courts because of the noise. Is there a happy medium between pickleball and peace of mind? We find out why the big interest rate hike announced by the Bank of Canada yesterday will also impact renters in this country. Further, driving up already high rental prices in many cities, especially big places such as Vancouver and Toronto. We speak to crime reporter Kim Boland of the Vancouver Sun about the murder today in Surrey, B.C. of one of the suspects acquitted in the Air India bombing that killed more than 300 people back in 1985. But first, Health Canada approves the first COVID vaccine for kids under the age of five. A doctor and a parent of a young child joins us to talk about what parents need to know. But first up tonight, Canada's drug regulator has approved Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine for infants and preschoolers, making it the first shot approved for that age group in this country. Health Canada says the Moderna vaccine can now be given to children ages of between ages of six months and five years old. Deputy Chief Public Health Officer Dr. Howard New says the next step is to help parents make informed decisions for their kids. The things we certainly... Uh would like to do is uh, is get as much information out there so that parents can make an informed decision. I think it's so important. It, it, it's not, not something that we're, we're forcing on anyone, but it's certainly that we want to make sure that the parents are comfortable. That's uh, new says that Canada has a good supply of the Moderna pediatric vaccines and they will be shipped to provinces to begin administering doses very shortly. Dr. Supriya Sharma with the National Advisory Committee on Immunization says the Health Canada approval comes at a critical time for this country in the pandemic as we move through another wave. And though children are less likely to experience complications from COVID-19, they can still get very sick and children like adults can spread the virus. Emerging data also suggests that children with COVID-19, regardless of severity, can develop long COVID. And rarely, some go on to develop multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which has a very high risk of hospitalization. Dr. Sharma says Health Canada will work with the provinces and territories, as well as regulators around the world, to monitor the safety of those vaccines. Well, joining me now with more on this is Dr. Wewa Dionandan. He's an, epi- or an epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Thank you for your time tonight. Good evening. It's my pleasure to be here. We've been waiting for this for a while. I know the Americans, of course, had approved one a while back. Uh, what will the impact of this be potentially? It seems like it's good news today. I think it's good news. I have a child under five who desperately needs to be vaccinated, and I've been waiting for this day for some months now. Now, will it have a profound effect on transmission at the community level? I don't think so. Well, it will have an effect on is the state of mind of parents, perhaps on the hospital admission rates for pediatric hospitals, and on the outbreak rate in places like elementary schools and in daycares. So I think it's very good news, and uh, I look forward to seeing just how many parents step up and accept vaccination for their kids. Yeah, a lot of parents that I know with young kids were very happy about today, very happy that this was finally approved. What should parents know? I mean, there's always questions about vaccinating one's children. What do you think parents should know, and where can they find that kind of information that they need? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So this vaccination, the data is not as clear-cut as it is for the adults uh, because the clinical trial is uh, shorter, has fewer subjects, and so forth. But Moderna, they're reporting a 51% vaccine efficacy against symptomatic disease. 
for kids under two and about 37% for kids between two and five years. That doesn't sound like a very high number, but it's pretty high when it's compared to zero, which is what you get from no vaccination. And that's just for symptomatic disease. In the hierarchy of potential vaccine outcomes, next up would be hospitalization, then death. And the vaccine has greater efficacy on those outcomes. So I expect it to be quite effective on preventing hospitalization and death, which is what I as a parent care most about. And this is um, you know, uh, contrary to Pfizer, who claims an 80% efficacy against symptomatic disease, which I don't really believe. We can talk about that later on. What parents need to know is that despite the high efficacy against symptomatic disease, your child still has a, a fairly good chance of getting infected, um, but now a much lower chance of having a bad outcome from that infection. And as uh, Dr. Sharma pointed out in your clip, this vaccine probably reduces the probability of long COVID and of MISC, multisystem inflammatory syndrome, which is what we care a lot about. What a lot of parents will care about as well is the possibility of something bad happening as a result of the vaccination. The clinical trials conducted by Moderna showed very good safety signal. The most common adverse reaction are things like pain at the site of injection and a fever, about 18% of the, uh, the kids in the vaccine group got a fever as compared to about 9% in the placebo group. So it doubles your chances of a fever, essentially. But even that is only a, a 20% chance of getting it. So I think the safety signal is very good and the potential for protection against a potentially fatal disease is pretty good as well. So all being said, uh, by my calculus, uh, the math bends towards getting vaccinated for your kid. I know that uh, health officials were quite uh, explicit today about saying, "Listen, this is a parental parent's choice. Uh, we're not; this, these are not mandates. We're not forcing this on anyone." Um, why do you think they've they've changed their tune a little bit on this one compared to some of the earlier uh, vaccine rollouts for older folks? Well, for one thing, uh, kids that age aren't going to be engaging in the economy as much. They're not going to get lattes at Starbucks. They're not going to be eating indoors with abandon. The vaccine passport system really doesn't appeal, uh, apply to them as much. And also people are far more sensitive when it comes to preventing or presenting risks for their children. I mean, I'm far more tolerant of risk to myself and I accept almost zero risk for my child. So as a result, any sort of uh, requirement for your child to receive a relatively new medical intervention in their bloodstream is something that uh, would be regarded as draconian by a lot of people. So they have to tread carefully. I, I fully understand that. Um, also, there is uh, this narrative, which is not entirely wrong, that small children are much less likely to have a bad experience with this disease than are adults. That's true. It's just that enough of them are getting sick and being hospitalized and dying to make this a concern. But because of the overall lower risk as compared to adults, it makes sense to ratchet back the requirement language as compared to adults. I know you're probably going to have to have this conversation, but how do you how do you talk to a child about getting this kind of vaccine? Because I, I gather that you know these are children now who've really grown up during a pandemic, so there must be a lot of psychological factors there too for kids just explaining what it is and what it's going to do, what it's not going to do, and so forth. Yeah, that's a good question. Now, it depends on the age of the child. My child is two years old. There's not really a whole lot of conversation to be had here. <laughs> no. He's getting his, his other vaccines at the same time, and so it's just one more thing stuck in his arm. Um, but for the older kids, you, you have a couple of options here. You could choose not to have the conversation. Say, hey, this is a medical thing that we have to do, like a chickenpox vaccine, like your regular checkup, etc. Or you can take this as a learning opportunity to talk about the world as a whole and how there are values implicit in living in a society, not using those obvious big words, uh, of course, but something about 
we care about each other. We care about your grandparents who might get sick if you get sick. We care about keeping mama and dada safe from being infected as well. And so we accept these small discomforts um, in the hopes that that heightens the chance of keeping the people you love safe. There are a variety of options here. Um, that's outside my expertise, the psychology of, of child vaccination. But Indeed, that's the way yes, I would approach yeah. it. That's the way I would approach as a, it. As a, as a parent, I guess you're sort of a default expert as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what is it? I mean, with not, with not being able to have young kids vaccinated, obviously there's been some restrictions when it comes to, you know, again, you mentioned grandparents. I know for a while that there were a lot of restrictions there when it came just to being able to bring your kids uh, out and about all the time to see everybody. Oh, like I, I'm there. That's my life the last couple of years is um, while my friends are out enjoying uh, restaurant life and socialization and travel, uh, my spouse and I have decided to keep our child relatively protected from that sort of thing. And of course, uh, my child has seen his relatives, but not nearly as intimately as we would like, not going into you know, other people's homes, for example, or having visitors in our own homes as much, relying heavily on outdoor visits. So this opens up the possibility of having a deeper, more fulfilling social life for your child, having your child engaged in more activities, indoor activities in particular, daycare, elementary school, if those have been denied some people, now it's back on the table. And certainly at a public health level, it means probably quelling the anxieties around outbreaks in places like daycare. So um, again, uh, this is just one tool to use. I have to stress that. Vaccination is but one tool. And a daycare environment, for example, we need everyone to be vaccinated, not just the children, but the adults to be fully uh, boosted. We need um, symptom checks to prevent infected adults from being present. And we need mask wearing when appropriate. And we need ventilation upgrades. All those things in tandem will allow us to keep our children as safe as possible. I guess it is important now, too, as we're seeing these new variants, uh, BA5 and so on, come in, that uh, that we should be as vigilant as ever. Yes, um, that's a big unknown, right? The effect that BA5 will have on the face of the pandemic. What we know about BA5 is that it's causing a, a much greater rate of reinfection. Therefore, there's a lot more infected people walking around than otherwise would have been. Uh, and the vaccines are good, at not necessarily preventing infection, but pretty good at preventing the bad outcomes of infection. So the fact that my child will be out in the world swimming amongst a sea of infection, it fills me with much better confidence knowing that he is now much less likely to end up in a hospital bed because of that. I'm speaking with Dr. Weiwat Dianandan. He's an epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. We're talking about Health Canada approving today one vaccine, the Moderna vaccine for kids under the age of five, between six months and five years old, and just all the different uh, all the different considerations that parents should be looking at when deciding whether or not to go forward with that. It will be rolled out uh, in provinces soon. I know BC announced when it will be available here today. Uh, coming up, Canada has reinstated random testing for COVID for passengers arriving into this country at major airports. Uh, is it necessary? What are we going to learn from it? That's next. We are committed to doing everything we can to ease the congestion at our airports. And we recognize that testing at airports was adding a layer of, of congestion. So we decided quickly to suspend them, uh, but committed that we are going to keep random testing, however, off airport premises. There's Transport Minister Omar, Omar Al-Gabra today. The federal government announced plans today to start randomly testing travellers at Canada's four main airports for COVID-19 again next week, but they intend to do the swabbing off-site. It paused, of course, as the minister was saying, uh, testing back on June 11th. Well, it worked on trying to get those tests 
off or out of airports. Uh, the government now says mandatory tests on randomly selected passengers will resume July 19th for fully vaccinated travelers arriving in Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal, and Toronto. My guest this half hour is Dr. Raywat Dionandan. He's an epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Uh, is this, is this, does this help us understand what, what's happening with COVID if we know who coming into the country is getting it randomly or randomly testing? Yeah, it does help. And this is something we call surveillance. And that's a scary word to a lot of people because it conjures up images of Big Brother staring at us through our bedroom windows. But disease surveillance is just keeping your eye out on the community for the prevalence of the disease, for spikes in disease uh, occurrence, and for changes in the disease profile. So we need to do, first of all, random testing in general to hunt the disease where it lives so that we're not passively waiting for people to present themselves to us at testing centers. Uh, random, active random sampling allows us to know where it is and to now allows us to know how common it is asymptomatically. R- random sampling for travelers is important for a couple of reasons. First is that it gives us a, a sense of whether new variants are entering the country. And that gives us some advanced notice because, for example, there's some you know, new variants floating around in India right now that we're concerned about. When that takes hold in Canada, we'll have a whole new face of this disease to deal with. So getting advanced notice of that happening is useful. The other reason is, uh, if you were to summarize how the countries who dealt with COVID well have dealt with it in the past couple of years, I would say they got good at three things. Number one was testing, case identification. Number two was acting quickly uh, and, and earnestly. And number three was patrolling their borders for reinfection. We haven't done that well up till now. So at random sampling of incoming travelers allows us to know how porous our borders are to the incoming uh, infection wave and allows us to pull the, the relevant policy levers to control that. But again, most importantly, as a surveillance tool to get a handle on the changing face of the disease as it enters our country. Because I know a lot of the talk today was, well, if you let people leave the airport and, and they then test positive later, they've already been out in the community spreading whatever it is they have. But you're saying this really isn't about stopping spread. This is about finding out what's coming in. It's surveillance, not, not prevention yeah. necessarily. That is my understanding. Now, that not be, might not be how the government chooses to communicate it, but scientifically, I feel that's where it's most important. A random sample, frankly, isn't going to control it that much. Testing everyone might control it a fair bit uh, more vigorously. It depends on what percentage of the population will be tested randomly. Is it 5%, 20%, 80%? If it's just you know, 5 or 15% or so, that's really a statistical sample to understand the face of the disease, not to control its spread necessarily. And as you point out, we're certainly dealing with new variants all the time. So this is perhaps one way, uh, because it feels like the testing within the country isn't all that robust right now. Uh, This is at least one way, I gather, to make sure we have a better idea of what's coming in. And also from Canadians themselves, right? What's circulating in, in the country, even as travelers come home? That's exactly right. I mean, most of the testing done now in the country is rapid testing done at home. And that doesn't get reported to public health or any sort of centralized registry. And that doesn't allow us also to determine the nature of the variant that you're infected with. Only PCR testing does that with some further investigation in the laboratory. So again, to have a better idea of the nature of the threat, we have to do random PCR testing with thorough laboratory investigation to get a sense of uh, the symptomatic nature of the person, how much viral load they're carrying, and what variant they are infected with. You only do that with this kind of strategy. Dr. Dion Dadnan, thank you so much for your time tonight. Much appreciated. It's my pleasure. Thank you.
of. It's the sport of pickleball. I was actually out for a run the other day in Victoria, and they've turned what used to be a basketball court, never used, and they built all these little pickleball courts, which are great looking. Uh, they're quite small. They look a bit like badminton courts. Uh, it's a it's a tennis net. They play with things that look like big ping pong paddles, and the ball looks like a wiffle ball, if that's if that's a good enough description of, of, of pickleball. But it's certainly popular. There are courts popping up all over the place. There were people using the tennis court uh, not far from where I live the other day uh, as well. It, it's still a tennis court. People still play tennis there, but there's obviously a time uh, when pickleball takes over. So I looked up pickleball. I didn't really realize much about it. It was invented back in 1965 as a kid's game, so it's not new. Actually, not far from Victoria, where I am, Banbridge Island, Washington State in Puget Sound, not so far from Seattle. And this year, also didn't know this, it was made Washington State's official sport. <laughs> there you go. Um, but every time you, if you Google it, you always see these articles about these battles between pickleball players and neighbors because it's kind of noisy because the ball is plastic and the paddles are wooden. So I was reading that researchers have shown that the sound of a solid pickleball paddle hitting one of those hard plastic balls can be about 25 decibels louder than that. Even of the hardest hit felt covered tennis ball, you be the judge. Right. So I should have explained the first one there is the tennis ball. The second one there is the pickleball. But lots of people love pickleball. So there must be a solution here. Um, is there a happy medium between pickle, pickleball and peace? Joining me now is Walter Necht. He's the president of Pickleball BC. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, thanks for having me on tonight. Uh, how can so, I, I mean, I, well, yes, go ahead. Go ahead. I, it, it's not just me, right? This is there's really been a real explosion in popularity of pickleball in the past little while. I, I see it especially this year now that everyone's allowed to get out and have fun again. Yeah, probably a big explosion happened during COVID because you know everybody had to get out and do something, and pickleball outside was a pretty safe um, thing to do. So um, we we saw a huge increase in membership last year. Mind you, our membership has been going up at about twenty five to thirty percent year on over the last five years since I became that's heavily involved. Yeah, that's astounding when you think of all the other sort of sports of its nature out there. You know, the ten tennis has obviously been declining in popularity. At least the courts near us were never particularly full. You think of other games, lawn bowling and so on. I mean, pickleball is really uh, an outlier in some senses when it comes to this kind of game. Why do you think it's so popular? There's a number of reasons. And, you know, the, some of the... The big ones are it's 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 really easy to get into it. It'll take me about five minutes to explain to you how to play, and you'll be able to hit the ball over the net. And uh, it'll take another fifteen years for you to become good at it, mind you. But uh, it is an easy start. It's relatively inexpensive. You can buy a new paddle for fifty bucks if you'd like, or some guys will spend three hundred dollars on it. The I realize. Uh, sorry, go ahead. It, it's it's easy to access any. Any outside, you know, paved surface works pretty well. The original courts down in Bainbridge were somebody's driveway. And they just That's popped right. up on there. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a lot of tennis courts being repurposed or dual-purposed at the present time, and we're getting a lot of our dedicated courts, which is the best way to go. We, you know, we don't really want to take away from another sport. Every every sport has its place in our society, but the, the social aspect of 
pickleball, I think, are quite unique. You know, we used to go and phone somebody to go play tennis or phone somebody to go hit the baseball around a bit. Now we go to the pickleball courts and we expect there will be 15 to 30 people there. So you don't have to organize it ahead of time. You get a fair bit of time standing around talking, exercising your brain, and then it's your turn on the courts and you get a little physical exercise. It's a, a big social event for a lot of people. I could give you names of about 15 couples that, that says they've saved our lives. We have now something in common. Or the my husband's heart attack, he couldn't do some of the more strenuous things like the grouse grind, but he certainly could go out there and play pickleball. So it's... Um, is it... Is it- is it popular for, for folks of all ages? Like, I mean, you know, when I go by, I often see people, like I see younger couples, I see older folks, I see all kinds of people out there playing. It, it's all over. The, we had a guy retire. He gave me his paddles six months ago, and he's only 92. But <laughs> we good. have a lot of octogenarians playing. Um, probably the average age, I think, is in the low 60s across the country right now. We do have some... Uh, 12 and 14 year olds who are pretty good. They can certainly run a lot faster and they got a lot more energy. And it's, you know, it's pretty easy. We do a fair bit of uh, teaching in schools right from the kindergarten up. Kindergartens don't get into too much of a serious game, but they, you know, they get out there and beat the ball around a little bit and they have a good time at it. So it's a popular, probably more so with the retired crowd because we can go out there and play at 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning. But there's lots of evening play for the uh, people that still have to work and pay taxes. In the summertime, there's a lot of youth out. Uh, so this evening, and there was a, I think the young guy is 12 now, and playing with us. He plays with the adults. He's been playing with us for a year now. So it's not restricted to the the old people anymore. You, you said earlier it was invented for the kids, and it, it was, but. When you read the story, the adults soon took it over, and the kids didn't have a chance anymore. And we are working hard to get the youth back involved and into schools to teach and to make a sustainable sport for them. And, uh, it's not easy to break in on some of those things, but we're working on it. When I um, described it earlier as sort of a combination of a whole bunch of things, it, it, that's about right. The ten, it's a tennis net. It looks a bit like a badminton court in terms of its size. Um, it's played with paddles that look a bit like uh, you know, like big ping ball. I mean, they're they're wooden, right? Uh, so how do you how do you how do you score? What, what's the uh, what sort of? I don't need to. I mean. You don't need to explain it all to me, but what's how do you score? And, and I guess it doesn't involve a huge amount of running around, right? So it means that people of all ages can sort of play against each other. We can play against each other quite easy. The the badminton the, the court size is a badminton court outside dimensions, and ninety percent or ninety five percent of our play is doubles, which you know two things is social, and uh, we don't have to run so far. So you'll see a lot of people that come from other sports that have some form of leg injury and they wear a brace, but that's not from pickleball very often. So the the fact that it's a small court makes it so much better, but uh, don't take that as it's a, a slow game. When we get 15 feet apart from each other and slamming the ball at 40 or 50 kilometers an hour, you've got to react pretty fast. Yeah, I was the watching the... Uh... 
the world championship. I was watching professional pickleball, pickleball and, and they really do bat the ball at each other. Yeah, and it, it, it's a big cat and mouse. You might have noticed that there's a lot of short play where we just tap it over the net back and forth, trying to get the opposition to make a mistake and then look out, we're going to slam it at you. <laughs> so the the scoring system is, is one still unique where you can only score when your team is serving, which right. puts a lot of drama into the thing. There's a number of times when we normally play to 11, but if a team gets down you know, as much as 10-0, they still have a chance. And there's many times when the tide changes, you take a timeout and momentum moves, and next thing you know, you're ahead 11-10, 12-10, and uh, you get the W in the column. So so lots of it. And just the the exponential growth of it, uh, I find fascinating, because there are so few new things that really take off like that, that are just, you know, sort of good old-fashioned outdoor social sports. Uh, Walter, I haven't touch the elephant in the room yet, which is the noise. <laughs> so we'll, we'll take a quick break and we'll get back. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to you about that when we get back. We're talking pickleball this half hour, the very popular sport these days. Walter Necht is the president of Pickleball BC. Uh, one of the issues, of course, I'm sure you, you know this, this issue all too well because it seems to pop up all the time, uh, is just about, about the noise. It's, it's odd that way because every time I, um, I, you know, at first I thought, okay, it happened here in the Victoria area where I am. There was sort of a story about noise and pickleball. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, it must just be a neighborhood thing. And then I Googled it and realized there were stories from all over North America, like the LA Times had written a big story about it. Uh, what do you make of all, of all that? What, it, how is it? Is it, is it uh, as contentious as it seems, as the, seems to be? There are some, some issues there. I don't want to avoid this issue, but I'd like to just go back one comment here. I looked up our membership numbers in 2016, and we had 1,600 in the province at that time. And the end of July this year, I'm predicting 11,000 registered members. Wow. So just an example of the growth. Yeah, so that's great. Back, back to the uh, the volume of the pickleball game. It uh, gets intensified by a few things. We will put uh, you know as many as eight or ten times the number of people on the particular footprint compared to tennis, for example. When you get that many people together and not far apart, and we all basically know each other, there's a you know, tremendous amount of trash talk going back and forth, so that gets loud. The ball, as you demonstrated prior to the segment here, is a bit loud. The paddle, paddles are usually a composite fiberglass and something material at this point. The wooden paddles are still out there, but the, the composite fiberglass ones perform much better for us, but they're still noisy. And the, the noise adds up, particularly when you get, you know, four or six courts together in, a, in an area. All going, you get 24 people out there banging back and forth. It can get a little noisy. So they have, there has been some issues. There's been some courts shut down. There was one in Victoria in the, the capital region there where it got shut down here a few months ago. The neighbors complained. There's been some mitigation attempts made, and uh, I know it's a it's an issue. It's this conversation yeah. is timely. We are doing some testing actually next week on some of the noise issues and um, various balls from a half a dozen manufacturers. I think we've got 15 or 18 different paddles that we're going to run through some tests and do some sound measurements on them. I've engaged an acoustical 
consulting firm to help us out and get some recommendations on on citing new places, on the issues that the neighbours may face and things like that. So we're trying to take a, a proactive stance to the to the concerns that uh, neighbours have, municipal governments have, and, of course, the Pickleball community does not want to lose any opportunity to play. So, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess some of the things I've seen, obviously, there's the idea of, of using a different kind of ball, but I imagine that might take away from the game. Um, you just need more space, right? I mean, really, if the sport's growing in popularity, uh, you, you, you know, you can't be playing on tennis courts because they weren't built for that uh, with that in mind, right? No, you've got a tennis court in every neighborhood, and they're, they're, you know, like 50 yards or less from residences, and that's a bit, probably a bit too close for the pickleball sound, particularly when we'll put, you know, eight times the number of people on the, the surface, eh? So it gives a lot yeah. of people and a lot of noise. So relocating the court is obviously a financial challenge to that. Finding space in some areas is a challenge. You get some of the, the smaller cities across the province where land is not as expensive as it is in either Victoria or Vancouver area, then that's not such an issue. Going inside is obviously a, an opportunity to sort of mitigate the noise problems, but a lot of us would really prefer to play outside. You know, the, Even though the wind blows the ball around, we'd rather have that than being inside on a nice sunny day. So it's unfortunately not a, a simple problem to to address. There is a whole bunch of stakeholders that have different perspectives on what's acceptable. We have looked and contacted some manufacturers of both balls and paddles to say, are you doing anything to to change the the volume of the game? And most of them are saying no because it's so popular. Why would we at this point? But right. we do know from all kinds of media coverage that there are issues, let's call them, across um, North America, for sure. Yeah, and I, I guess, I mean, one would think, though, that as it becomes more popular, that there is a solution out there. And again, I, I gather it's, uh, you know, what they did here in Victoria is they built some courts in what was a parking lot and um, basketball court in a park where there isn't any residences nearby. And it seems to be very popular there, too. But that doesn't really solve the problem of it's becoming increasingly popular. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I, I guess really, you know, governments always talk about, from municipal all the way up, always talk about wanting to encourage people of all ages to go outside and be active. And what better way to do it than this? So one would assume that there has to be a compromise or a solution here uh, somewhere if, if there's enough pressure on people to make uh, to make room for pickleball out there. Yeah, and it's, it's a big social issue, that's for sure, because you know, the number of people that we get out um, is quite a bit, and it's, um, you know, not expensive. It, it, it's addictive in a sense where you see the same people back all the time, but there's lots of people out. And the governments have to realize that we've got to do something. And the easiest for them is to either take us out into the country or build a building so we can control the noise in that area. But both of those are expensive options. Yeah, so absolutely. We are looking at, at all kinds of uh, other some natural remedies, like you put space between you, or you put a, a, a berm or something else, or oh. some of the equipment is 
is difficult to change, but again, that's in the conversation. Uh, Walter, we're problem. running out of time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for your insight on this. Um, and now I know t- 11,000 people from, from 1600. That's a remarkable number in BC alone. Thank you so much for your time tonight, Walter Necht. Thanks for having me. Take care. We talked a lot yesterday about the Bank of Canada's surprisingly steep interest rate increase um, of 1%, the highest one-day jump since 1998, now sits at 2.5%, with more potentially on the way. What we hadn't really looked up or looked at is what impact it might have on the rental market, because of course, it's already very stretched. It's very expensive and very low supply in a lot of places, specifically areas like the greater Vancouver area, the Vancouver, the lower mainland, uh, the GTA, the greater Toronto area, uh, even places like Calgary have seen big rent increases. Victoria, where I am, rent is very high. Supply is very low. And, and one of the big issues here is that is that if people can't afford to buy they stay in their rentals, and that clogs up the rental system even further. Uh, and of course, rents are already going up. Uh, so we want to dig into this a little bit more. And joining us to do that is Paul Dennison. He's the content director for the market website, rentals.ca. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. I guess rental renters aren't the first people you think of when there's an interest rate hike announcement. Uh, but this will have an impact, I imagine, or at least uh, it appears it's going to. What kind of impact will it have? Well, mostly it'll have an impact in uh, cities such as Vancouver, Toronto, uh, some of the GTA cities, uh, cities surrounding uh, Vancouver, where there's already a really, really tight rental market. Uh, You add interest rates on top of inflation, high rents, uh, low supply, and it it just adds a little bit more pain for people trying to rent a new home. How does it manifest itself in the rental market? Well, uh, I don't think immediately in a lot of cities, but I think uh, down the road what happens is is that higher interest rates, people can't afford a mortgage. Uh, they stay in the rental market a little bit longer, so it creates a lot more demand. Um, in the long run, though, I mean, prices with higher interest interest rates should come down in the housing market to make it a little bit easier for people to uh, buy. But when you're in a market like Vancouver or Toronto, where the prices, even though they've gone down maybe 17, 20%, the prices are still really high. And you add interest rates, that mortgage payment is still going to be really high. And I guess this is just basic supply and demand stuff too, right across the country right now, but specifically in the places you're mentioning. Exactly. Yes. Uh, again, especially Vancouver, Metro Vancouver, Toronto, GTA, Halifax, really tight markets. What um, what about other parts of the country? Because I gather we're seeing a bit of a tightening supply of a supply just about everywhere. Mostly everywhere. Rents in uh, Montreal are up. They're up in Ottawa. They're up in Winnipeg a little bit. Uh, Calgary, they're up quite a bit. And again, the demand supply uh, is is the main factor, but all of the others, the interest rates, inflation, supply chain, uh, all of that factors into this, which will make a little bit tighter rent and also a lot of higher prices. 
So where are we seeing the the biggest sort of shifting and, and, and how much is this different from what we traditionally knew as the renter's market? I mean, I know there's always been tight renter's market, for instance, in Victoria, where I am, uh, the rental market's always been pretty tight. But where I grew up in Montreal, the rental market was never tight. It was always, there were always a pretty plentiful uh, availability of apartments. That seems to have changed now. Right across the country, the rental market is starting, feels like it's starting to shift. Yeah, you know, during the pandemic, uh, people were staying put. There were higher vacancy rates. Uh, rents had been going down. Now that we're uh, trying to get out of this pandemic, uh, I don't know what uh, BA5 and some other variants might have to say about this, but uh, um, rents in most all cities are starting to shift a little bit, rising, uh, tighter demand or tighter supply, more demand. We got higher immigration uh, rates coming. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a shift in most all cities that rents are starting to rise. Where are we seeing the real pressures? Because I understand, I would imagine that for different size uh, rental units, there are different availability pressures as well. Well, during the pandemic, we saw a huge demand for larger units. Um, people were able to work from home. They wanted more room. They could they could get out in the surrounding areas. The surrounding cities of, of the big metro areas were hurt quite a bit by this with higher rents. But now we're starting to see people go back to the cities, uh, downtown cores, there were, where the uh, smaller units are. So the smaller units are starting to pick up, the one-bedrooms, the studio units. So what kind of rents are we talking here? I mean, for those who may not have been in the rental market for a while or those who haven't been looking at what rentals are costing these days, uh, what sort of prices are we looking at in some of those bigger markets? Well, let's take, for instance, Vancouver. It's Out of the 35 cities that we list on rentals.ca, Vancouver has been at the top of the list for some time now, at least a year. Uh, a one-bedroom is going to cost you on an average about $2,400 and a two-bedroom, almost $3,600. Toronto, we're seeing about $2,200 for a one-bedroom, and then about $3,100 for uh, a two-bedroom. And it kind of goes from there. But those are the two biggest markets right there. Um, Victoria, a two-bedroom is around $2,800, which... uh, still is is incredibly high for for that city um let's take a look at calgary calgary is a lot cheaper but rents have really gone up there so you know you're going to be paying up to maybe 1800 or more for a two-bedroom maybe about uh 1500 dollars for a, a one-bedroom do you have any idea of what's driving stuff up in calgary suddenly well they've had a lot of uh uh Units that have gone on the market, newer units. Uh, I think it's just a lot of people have moved to Calgary. I think there's just a whole lot more demand there than what there has been in the past. Uh, one thing that that is obvious in this is that you know those who can least afford these rising prices are often the ones who get caught out by them. So this is this I imagine is is an unequal. The, the impact of this is felt unequally uh, across the country by by people in different income brackets. Obviously, very much so. Uh, the lower end of the market, people who are in fixed incomes are hurt by this. And take, for example, uh, surrounding cities of Toronto and Montreal, where people have lived for a long time. Uh, let's take, for instance, maybe the city of um, 
oh, let's pick Kingston. Or we could look again at maybe a, a city like um, London in sure. in um, Ontario. People have been living there for a long, long time and renting, and, and all of a sudden they either are forced to move or they have to move, and they're looking at rent increases of maybe $500 plus a month because what they're used to paying has been driven up now by people moving from the GTA to these cities and the rents are just outrageous. And of course, one thing that we do notice is that uh, I imagine the market demands what the market demands, right? So if you're a landlord and you're all of a sudden find yourself with a vacant unit, you're going to check out what everyone else is charging and charge accordingly, even if your mortgage is low or your mortgage is paid off, right? You're just going to charge market value. Yeah, exactly. That's what most do. I mean, I don't, I don't speak for all landlords, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I think they'll look at the market and see what people are, are getting for their units and they'll try to charge the exact same thing. Paul Dennison, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it, Ben. Well, police in BC continue, continue to investigate the shooting death tonight uh, of a Vancouver, in the Vancouver suburb of Surrey, of a man acquitted in the 1985 Air India bombing. It happened this morning. Uh, in broad daylight, Raputaman Singh Malik was murdered outside a business he'd owned just before 9.30 a.m. Now, of course, the Air India bombing on June 23rd, 1985, remains the deadliest terrorist attack in Canadian history, one of the deadliest aviation terrorist attacks still of all time. 329 passengers died when Flight 80, 182 was blown apart off the coast of Ireland. Um, two other baggage handlers died when another bomb placed in luggage went off at Narita Airport in Japan. The attack was suspected to have been carried out by six separatists in retaliation for the Indian government's attack on Amritsar's Golden Temple a year earlier that left hundreds of Sikh pilgrims dead. Malik and associate Ajab Singh Bagri were alleged to have been part of a conspiracy of a small group of BC militants who placed those suitcase bombs on those two connecting flights out of Vancouver. Uh, the deadly tag bags were tagged for area into flights heading in opposite directions. Now, in March 2005, Malik and Bagri were acquitted of murder and conspiracy charges. Well, joining me now with more on this is Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim, Kim Bolin, also the author of Loss of Faith, How the Air India Bombers Got Away with Murder. And she knows more about the Air India attack than most of us, I believe, uh, have, than anybody. She's forgotten more than most of us will ever know. Kim, thanks so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. So just what happened today? We saw the reports early this morning, but I guess police are still trying to figure out what exactly went down. Well, unfortunately, the MO of how this murder uh, took place is very similar to many of the gangland murders we've had on the Lower Mainland in recent years. You know, uh, a shooter pulls up, uh, probably a hired hitter, face covered, blasts away at their target and then takes off. A burning car is found a short distance away and the suspect escapes. So, we have seen this uh, in many other cases that are more related to gangs and organized crime. Very shocking to learn that it was Raputaman Singh Malik. He is 75 years old, and well, he was charged and later acquitted in this terrible terrorism case. He hasn't been in the general public's uh, you know, mind much over the last uh, dozen years or so since he was acquitted on those charges. And I guess we have uh, no notion of a motive yet in this. Well, there are several motives. I don't think this is going to end up being related in any way whatsoever to Air India, uh, even though obviously, you know, all of us in the media are rehashing the details of that terrible terrorist plot, uh, given that he was acquitted in it. And in my book, as the title highlights, um, you know, I lay out 
uh, a case as to why he probably shouldn't have been acquitted in the Air India bombings. Um, having said that, people are thinking that this might be uh, a personal dispute, possibly. He was someone with a lot of business interests. He was still very involved politically. And back in January, he wrote a letter to the Prime Minister of India, controversial man, uh, Mr. Modi, and uh, he was uh, saying that he supported some of the measures that uh, Modi had been taking uh, to deal with some of the uh, outstanding grievances that Sikhs had in India. So he took a lot of heat when that letter was published in media in India. Some people think he was betraying the Sikh separatist cause, of which he was once a very high-profile member. So that's something that people are talking about as a potential motive. Um, He also, as I reported, um, you know, had had gotten some flack uh, from religious uh, sectors in India and in Canada over his link to publishing of the Sikh holy book outside of India against an edict that had been issued in Amritsar in Punjab. So, you know, there are a lot of things that people are throwing around, but all the people I've spoken to in law enforcement and those who knew Mr. Malik are saying today that it wouldn't be appropriate to speculate. We really don't know where this investigation is going to go. And everyone is hoping that uh, police get some leads. It was a very busy area where he was shot. Uh, Clearly, the killer or killers knew uh, that he had an office there, likely knew what time he arrived to go to work because he was shot, as you said, just before 9.30 a.m. as he was uh, in his car outside of this industrial plaza and uh, where the vehicle was found burning six blocks away. It's a very residential area, so police are calling, you know, put a call out for witnesses. They're also looking for uh, any video, dash cam video, that someone might have from the vicinity at the time. And we know from other cases that that kind of video can be extremely helpful in identifying suspects and potentially getting charges laid. I know you've looked into this already. There's been a lot of reaction, of course, to this, both from uh, Mr. Malik's family, from uh, the families of the victims of the Air India bombing today as well. Uh, what have you picked up in terms of reaction to, to this to this murder this morning? Well, I think everyone uh, is sharing a sense of shock. It was really surprising. Uh, you know, this is a man I have covered for decades. Uh, you know, I've had threats leveled against me in his name. I can't say they came from him, but they came from people that... Uh, were naming him in the letters that were sent to the newsroom. Uh, And still, I I just never imagined this happening. So, you know, it's an open wound for the Air India victims' families. They believe that Malik and others have a lot of information still about what happened back in June of 1985. And uh, when they die, that information dies as well. And then obviously, Mr. Malik's family, you know, adores him. He's their patriarch. They believe he's innocent. His son said in a statement today that, you know, uh, basically he never should have been charged uh, when, in fact, the judge that acquitted him said, look, I'm not finding him innocent. I'm just saying, you know, an acquittal is an acquittal. It, It falls short of saying someone didn't commit the crime. Yeah, Mr. Malik, uh, after that acquittal in 2005, and even, I guess, beforehand, had gone on to have, he was still very involved in the community. There was a credit union, there was a school, and so forth. Uh, he was quite a prominent member uh, of his community. Yes, he was. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people praise him for the work that he did on behalf of his community. You know, but other people also believe that he maintained uh, those positions and these institutions that he helped create 
as a way of maintaining power in the community. I remember the late Tara Singh-Hare, who was uh, assassinated, uh, a journalist, but also someone who had agreed to be a witness in the Air India case at the time he was killed. And he said to me that Malik holds the power over the very, you know, basic, um, you know, wants and desires of his community. He can help get children into a private school, and he can also help people, you know, get financing so that they can buy um, a house or start a business, right? So he has been a very powerful person. Some people have alleged he's misused those positions within those institutions, uh, but other people credit him with having started them in the first place. Do you have any, knowing these cases as you do, uh, is, is there any chance that this will be solved? Are they are they often solved or do they often go unsolved? Well, that's a real tough one. Uh, you know, because like I said, the way this murder was conducted, it was more like a gangland hit than a traditional murder or crime linked to terrorism or terror plot. Um, I, I think that they are going to make some headway in solving it. But then you just have to look back at the murder of Tara Hare uh, in 1998. And even though there's tons of information about the suspects, about the fact that uh, people linked to the Air India bombing likely plotted that, no one's ever been charged. And that was the assassination of a journalist, I believe to have been killed for stories he wrote in his newspaper and for agreeing to be a witness in the country's biggest terrorism case. And someone you knew well, right? Someone I knew well, yeah. Um, so, you know, if you don't see justice in high-profile cases like that, or just look at the Air India case. I mean, Mr. Malik was acquitted. His co-accused, Ajab Singh Bagri, was also acquitted. Just one man, Indrajit Singh Raya, was convicted. And even then, he never, you know, stated in a public court, even when he was called as a crown witness, look, here's what happened. I'm really sorry. I regret my role in all this. So a lot of people still are holding a lot of secrets, even though it's 35 years plus since this terrorist attack occurred. My guest this half hour is Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Bolin, author of Loss of Faith, How the Air India Bombers Got Away with Murder. We're talking about the murder today of Rapidaman Singh Malik. Uh, he was acquitted in 2005 of charges related to that attack in 1985 that caused the death of uh, 331 people, including 329 on board Air India Flight 182. Of course, many of them Canadian. We're hearing from uh, families of the victims today, again, reliving that time, uh, how little support they got from the Canadian government, even though most of the people on board that plane were Canadian citizens. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a bit more just, and, and Kim, you've already spoken about this, just about when information is lost, what cannot be retrieved about this deadliest of terrorist attacks in Canadian history. We'll be back with that. To me, this is like, uh, this is like a nightmare that never stops giving because like it just brings back all the you know the horrible memories uh, of what we've had to go through for the last 37 years and I was supposed to be on the flight as well and um, it's something you think about a lot that is Deepak Kendalwal, uh, a man whose two older sisters were killed aboard Air Fl uh, India Flight 182, uh, describing what it was like to hear about the death today of, of Rupudman Singh Malik, uh, and saying it brings up old wounds, saying the families went through enough, just waiting 18 years for the trial, didn't get much of any support from the Canadian government for the deaths of mostly Canadian citizens. My guest this half hour is Kim Bolin. Uh, she's the Vancouver Sun's crime reporter, author of Loss of Faith, How the Air India Bombers Got Away with Murder. Uh, you touched on this earlier, Kim, um, there's still so much, I guess, that is not known 
or at least not publicly known about what happened that awful day back in June of 1985. And I imagine that when each person who is suspected of having been involved uh, leaves us, that some of that information will never be known to some extent. Is, is that the sense you're getting today? Oh, yeah, that's very, very true. And uh, we had another suspect who, in fact, testified at the trial. And, uh, you know, there was actually contradicting evidence to what he said uh, on the stand that was never introduced by the Crown. That's something I wrote about in my book. And, and he died, I think, of a heart problem a year, year and a half ago. And, you know, to my knowledge, no one went and talked to him before he died, even though you often hear from retired investigators that, you know, old cases like this, can be broken wide open by people who decide to come forward when they're sick or perhaps, you know, uh, facing, uh, you know, death in, in short order. And yet I don't feel like there's any active investigation. I mean, I was just out at the memorial service on June 23rd in Stanley Park, the first time that it could be held since the pandemic began in 2020. And, um, so for that, I did a story and I called up the RCMP and, you know, they give their annual statement saying, oh, yeah, if there are any tips in the case, you know, phone them in. So instead of just putting that quote in my story yet again after another year, I asked them, how many tips have you gotten in recent years? Where should people phone? Uh, and then they got back to me with a statement that said, in fact, it had no tips in recent years. So, you know, it doesn't give you uh, any kind of reassurance that headway will be made in this um, investigation uh, of the worst crime in Canadian history. Right. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, there's no other single other act that has resulted in so many deaths uh, that remains generally unresolved. I spoke to Bob Ray that day and he voiced exactly the same thing. I asked him, you know, do you think this will ever be figured out? And, you know, yeah, or, or have we even learned from it? You know, have we learned to accept that what happened that day was, you know, a Canadian tragedy? And he wasn't, he wasn't entirely convinced that we had gotten there yet. I mean, you've worked on this for, for so long. What, are your, what is your sense now? It's been 37 years. Do you think we'll ever know enough? Well, I think we know a lot. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I see people asking questions on social media that have largely been answered in the reports that came out in 2010 from the Air India uh, Commission of Inquiry done by Justice John Major. Uh, so there's a lot of information there on the public record. The problem is it isn't really something that's widely known, uh, you know, amongst Canadians. And we know from the early days of uh, the bombings and the aftermath that, you know, Canada generally ignored uh, this te terrorism attack because, you know, it was a bit embarrassing to be connected to it. And, you know, there's the famous example when Brian Mulroney called uh, Rajiv Gandhi to offer condolences for the lost victims, even though almost all of them were Canadian or Canadian residents, right? So, you know, that's the way it was in the early days. It was sort of, um, you know, I remember writing this in my book in uh, 2005 that, you know, it was a front page story. It happened on a Sunday and by Thursday it was off of the front page of newspapers, like the worst terrorist attack in Canadian history, right? So it's never gotten the attention it deserves. And now, you know, there are, there's a whole new generation of Canadians that maybe don't, didn't read all the stories about the investigation, the trial. Uh, so I think in that generation, there's a lot of people who don't have uh, even the basic knowledge of what went down. And, um, you know, I'm seeing a bit of revisionist history out there, and it's hard to tackle 
because there's just so much information. You know, you can't respond to every single comment on social media going, well, actually, that's not true. If you check, you know, in, in this archive online, you can find material that will contradict what you're saying. You know, and uh, I think the problem is that this hasn't been taught in Canadian schools, uh, that there isn't a way of sort of permanently memorializing what happened, um, you know, so that the vast majority of Canadians know now and will know in the future. And you've spoken so often to the families of the victims and just how they've felt over the years. I imagine, again, as we heard uh, from Deepak Kandawal uh, in, coming into this uh, section of the interview, just how disappointed this is. They they remain to this very day. I'm sure that sentiment was uh, was was it was there to be seen too this year, because uh, I gather it was the, the 35th anniversary, which couldn't be held on the date because of the pandemic. Right. Yeah, a lot of us were going to go to India, or pardon me, to Ireland. Um, you know, the Irish, uh, you know, in the village near where the plane went down have, you know, had a memorial built to the victims within the first year. It took uh, 20 years for that to happen in Canada. And so uh, people have gathered there on special anniversaries, you know, 10 years, 20 years. Uh, and it's really quite a remarkable experience being there uh, with the victims' families and the Irish people who, um, you know, show up even though they have no direct connection to this. Uh, terrorist attack and uh, you know some of the families of uh, victims have you know given scholarships out in the community of Bantry uh, in Ireland and they just have really built this wonderful relationship with the community so when you see that I mean there's a real positive thing and these victims families like they're really remarkable you don't see hatred you see I, so many of the young people who are, you know, sort of the second generation who were small kids when family members were killed have gone on to have careers in law enforcement, you know, police, prosecutors, uh, criminologists. And, you know, I think they've just been really impacted by uh, what happened to their family and what they've had to go through all these decades. And again today, Kim Boland, thank you so much for your time tonight, as always. Anytime. Anytime. 